Go ahead, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter four. We're gonna get off to a running start today. Uh, let me just go ahead and clear the air, uh, let you know where we're going. Who in here likes to be in control? And this is not the time to grow a halo. Come on, don't act brand new. We all like to be in control. Uh, if, if, if that's you, if you're anything like me, you do like to have some sense of control, maybe more than you should, then this next story might make you giggle a little bit. Uh, when I was a kid, we would go camping. Any ha- happy campers in the room? I love to go camping. Any unhappy campers in the room? It's like I would rather stay home. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, basically, we would go camping when I was a kid, and uh, the way it would go down is I would love to like go explore the woods and like play in the rivers, and uh, I was maybe... 10 years old when this happened. And so I went uh, down to the Tow River in Burnsville, North Carolina. Yes, you could hear the banjo music on the way in. And so the Tow River in Burnsville, North Carolina. And uh, on the other side of the river, you could like kind of get across. It was shallow. And there was a rope swing that would like swing over uh, the deep. And so I saw these big kids over there on the rope swing. And I was like, I got to get on that rope swing. And so I walked over there and uh, my turn came and like my blood pressure was like starting to go up. And my heart was starting to like kind of pound because I knew that everybody was going to kind of be watching me on the rope swing. And so I get, I get on that rope swing and I push off the bank. And it's just that epic moment where you start to kind of soar over the water and you're supposed to let go. I didn't let go. <laughs> so I, I, I came colliding back to the bank and I hit the tree so hard that I ricocheted about halfway out as far as you were supposed to. And I ended up finally letting go into the shallow uh, area. And so I'm not sure what was hurt worse, my body or my pride, but both were deeply uh, affected. And here's the, the whole point in all this is we don't like to release control, do we? We have a really hard time letting go. And if you think about it, if you go back to the beginning, how did we get ourselves into this broken mess to begin with? Uh, we said, God, I'm going to take control. God, I am, I'm not going to listen to you. And like a senseless toddler, like a selfish teenager, here's what we did. We said, I'm going to be in control, but I'm not going to be under control. I'm going to take control, but I'm not going to trust God's control. And this is uh, one of, if not the biggest issue that we have is that we think that we know more than God. And we think that if we can try to control outcomes, that we're going to be in a better place. And if we trusted his, his plan and his purposes, even when we can't see it, And I would just invite you to point to any sin in your life that is not on some level directly tied to your need for control. It's driving so much of the sorrow, so much of the the, the struggle, so much of the sickness that we experience in life. It's It's just our need to be in control. And so maybe you live with, let's get outside of ourselves for a moment, then we'll come right back to ourselves. Um, maybe you live with or you work with or you're close with someone who's a very controlling person. It's hard. It's, it's hard being around someone who just has to white knuckle every situation and outcome, isn't it? But here's what that person probably would not tell you underneath the veneer of arrival. What they would not tell you is that they're deeply insecure, deeply anxious, deep, deeply afraid, deeply unhappy. And so, but let's, let's assume that you are a person who, who needs to be in control. What you wouldn't just come out and say is, well, I'm an unhappy, insecure, afraid, and anxious person, but you're like I am. That, that really is where I find myself. And now, hear me say this. I'm not saying that there are not areas of our life that we are not called to, on some level, take some control of. Like, you need to eat right. 
You need to, you need to get some sleep. You, you need to exercise. You need to take responsibility for some spiritual disciplines and pursue Christ through the, the, the means of grace like prayer, like Bible into, intake, church attendance. Like I, I'm not talking about those things that we actually can control. I'm talking about the things when, the, when the, the rug is yanked out from underneath our feet like a global pandemic or like inflation, <laughs> an economic crisis or a sickness that you never could have forecasted or predicted or some chronic illness or injury that you deal with that you, hey, it's, it's like it just happened. Or like where are your kids, like are your kids actually gonna respond to your investment? Are they gonna grow up and are they gonna actually go the course that you, that you encourage them uh, to go. So here's the freedom. The freedom comes when you say, God, you know more than I do, and I'm gonna trust you no matter what comes. That's the, that's the free, the most freeing, the most best way that we could possibly live is for us to say, I don't have to have the final word, and I can trust that what, everything that God allows, everything that God says, everything that he does is for a bigger purpose that I can't always see, and I'm gonna trust him, his control and not mine, Amen. So here's the freedom, and I, I, this is just the hope that I want to give to you out of Galatians today, is that the gospel frees us from control to surrender. It frees us from our need to control people, to control situations, to surrender. And I, what I want to do is I just want to spotlight four freeing realities that are going to come out of Galatians 4, 8 through 31. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, but four realities uh, about surrender, how it sets you free and can give you the ability to release control. So go ahead and take a look with me at verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Let me break that down for you. You are trying to be in control. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, you've surrendered control. You, you've said, God, I want you to be in charge, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the background, and you're going to be in control. If that's really happened, though, if you've gone to taking control, to surrendering control, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? In other words, you were in control, you surrendered control, and now you're trying to take back control. It's like, this is a crazy cycle. What are you guys doing over there in Galatia? And then verse 10, you observe, you observe days and months and seasons and years. So here's the first reality that I want to show you out of Galatians 4 uh, in these verses 8 through 10. Surrender frees you from two forms of slavery. Trying to pay God back and trying to pay God off. Outside of Christ, you're in one of these two prisons. And oftentimes, in, inside of Christ, like those in Galatia, we still walk back into the jail cell, and we live like we're slaves when we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Almighty God. Why do we do this? Well, let's, let's, let's think about this. You see, when you're in control of your life, here's what you're doing. You're rejecting God in one of two ways. Uh, whether positionally, you've, not, you've never been found in Christ, so you have like just completely rejected him and you're not, you're not found, you're not forgiven, you, you don't see the need for Jesus. So positionally or functionally, you're in Christ, but you're functioning as if you're outside of Christ in these two ways. First, the first way that you do it is uh, you will try to pay God back. And that's, that's what Galatians is, uh, is, is showing us right here in verse 8. When you did not know God, you were what? Enslaved 
you were a servant to, you, you bowed down and worshiped, what? Idols. And so I don't know that any of us have actually thought deeply enough about the debilitating effects of idolatry on our hearts and on our hopes. Let me, let me tell you what an idol is. Uh, it's not just some, some statue with a big belly that you like rub as like a ritual or something like that. It's actually a lot more practical. Uh, an idol is anything that you look to for ultimate security or identity. And it's anything outside of the, the one true biblical God. It's, think, when you think idolatry, think security. What makes me feel safe? What, what, what makes me feel okay? Think identity. Where do I, where do I look to, to for my sense of purpose and personhood? And so what is idolatry? Well, think about it. It's our way of paying God back for having the nerve to tell us how to live. That's what it is. It's like, God, you're not in control. I'm gonna take control. So I'm gonna worship lesser loves and false gods. And so the Galatians did this and we do this. And here's the attitude. God, you can't have control of my life. I'll break laws. I'll ignore limits. I'll pay you back forever trying. And pay, payback, it looks a lot of different, uh, like a lot of different things, but at the floor level, it looks like resistance to God's ways. And what it is, I'm going to be in control. There's a lot of areas of application right here where we try to t- take control. But I'll just, well, I'll, I'll spotlight a, a, a few uh, really quickly. One is with forgiveness. So here's, here's what you can say. You can say, I'm going to forgive others as Christ has forgiven me, and I'm going to be a debt forgiver instead of a debt collector. But often what we do is we try to intercept justice and we try to exact vengeance outside of God. And we say, I'm going to pay them back and that's how I'm going to pay God back. It's not, not letting him preside over justice, not trusting that he sits on a throne of righteousness and justice and that either that offense is going to pay, be paid for at Calvary or it's going to be paid for in eternity. No, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of that. And that's a miserable way to live, by the way. When you reject God's plan for forgiveness, for yourself and for others, you're going to be a miserable, angry, vengeful, bitter person. And you're going to find yourself here. And here's, I've heard bitterness described this way. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to be punished. (laughs) It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so you live like a prisoner. Another way that we reject this is when it comes to generosity. And this could be your finances. This could be your possessions. It could be a number of different things. But here's the deal. You can be a giver or you can be a taker. And I just want to put this question in front of our church. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as that person who every time you came around, you had your hand out expecting people to give to you, to always meet your needs? Or are you going to be remembered as a person who, yes, you do, you are needy. You need, you need your needs met. All of us do. But you could also be needed by being a giver and not just a taker. And by saying, I'm going to, I'm going to invest in in others. Uh, there's uh, research that continues to surface um, and all these, all these articles on the internet, um, all these studies that says that uh, greed is at the root of our mental health crisis. And so what are we, what are we all about right now? Well, my mental wellness, let me get my mind right. Let me have a little bit of brain space over here so that I can process all of this. And that's important. You know, the gospel touches your mind, body, and soul. So it's holistic. But if we would let go of, of greed and if we would stop white knuckling our wallets and, and, and stop holding so, uh, like pinching our possessions and like let go of some things, did you know that sci- science actually proves that uh, generosity tied to relationships 
is one of the best resolutions to uh, mental illness and, and me- the mental health crisis that we're seeing. And so where do we get this? We get this from Scripture. It's, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and it's what happens when we try to pay God back as we say, no, I'm not going to be about you with forgiveness. I'm not going to be about you with finances, or maybe it's another area. Second, we try to pay God off. So verse 9 basically says, you went from trying to pay God back to trying to pay God off. So all you did was trade taskmasters. So in context, what Paul does in verse 9 is he talks about elementary principles. So that's the ways of the world when it comes to success. And how does the world think about success? Earn it. Achieve it. Perform. But here's, here, in God's economy, you see, God's kingdom is upside down to the kingdom of the culture. It's inside out from the kingdom of the culture. And it's not you go and you prove yourself and God will accept you. It's you accept you and then God enables you to live a life that's, that's worthwhile, that's worth, worth living. And so when you try to come to God with your busted up, broken, good works that you think are so good, that's like coming to God with monopoly money and saying, I'm going to pay off a, a billion dollar debt. He's like, that, that doesn't work in my economy. And you know, this was the whole occasion of the book of Galatians, by the way. After the Galatians surrendered to Jesus by faith, they started trying to earn it by works. They went from accepting Jesus' resume to trying to build their own resume and, resume and be like, God, you're going to be really glad that you got me on your team. I know there was that whole cross thing. That was a big deal. But, you know, honestly, I, I, I got it from here. I can take it from here, Captain. But, uh, and here's what this leads to. Some will say that all religious worldviews, you hear this all the time, and it's categorically false, is that all religious worldviews are uh, fundamentally similar and only superficially different. But let me tell you that they're actually only superficially similar, but Christianity is fundamentally different. And I can summarize it for you with one word. You don't get this, you do not get this uh, with Islam. You do not get this with Buddhism. You do not get this with Judaism. You do not get this with Hinduism. You do not get this with secularism. Grace. That's it. That's what differentiates the Christian life, the Christian gospel, from any other mainstream message or mission or worldview on the planet. And here's what's so freeing about the gospel. It's not just that it's true. It's that it's different. It's that it's different, and this is hope for somebody. You are not accepted because you're good, and you're also not rejected because you're bad. We're, we, are, we are welcomed as an act of unmerited grace by Jesus Christ alone, by faith in him alone. And there's one of my favorite encounters with Jesus in the Gospels that happens in Luke chapter 7. He proves this, by the way. He gets invited to a who's who dinner party. And all the who's who's who are good at being good, and they look down their nose on other people because they don't have the humility to look up to God. And all the, they're called Pharisees. And so they're at this dinner party, and there's this great sinner, this sinful woman who just busts up in that party and just crashes the whole thing. And she comes in and she starts anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume. And so here's what Jesus basically says to the who's who's. He says, hey, you're good at being good, but that doesn't get you into my kingdom. Uh, She's good at being bad, but that doesn't kick her out of my kingdom. And so what he does is he he basically commends the great sinner instead of all these guys over here who think that they're building their resume and that they can earn it. 
Let's keep reading. See, Paul's going to get very personal and he's going to get very relational in verses 11 through 20. Take a look. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Here's the next principle about surrender that I want to give to you. Surrender frees us to view our pain as a platform. You see, what happens when you're in control of your life? You're always going to be seeking to police your pain, to prevent your pain. And what do you do when you're in control of your life? You will blue light God anytime he permits any semblance of pain. You know, there's entire industries in our world that are built on pain prevention. Not that all of that, not, not trying to vilify, like, you know, comfort's not a bad thing. You know, our God is a God of comfort. But often the greatest comfort comes through the deepest suffering and the deepest pain. Did you catch how the gospel made it to the Galatians in the first place? Take a look at verse 13. It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Very interesting, because reading Paul's letters, here's what it's like. It's like reading one side of a text message conversation, and you can't see the responses. You can't see everything else that was going on. You can only just see kind of what he's sending out and how he's interacting and, and responding to the felt needs and the spiritual needs of his readers in Galatia. But here's one thing that's very clear about Paul's perspective. We need this. He saw his pain as a platform. And what we think happened here, it's very interesting, is that we think that Paul actually on his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, that he got malaria. And this can be transmitted through mosquitoes or other insects. And we think that he got malaria. And the only way that he could be healed from the malaria would be for him to go up into the mountains away from the mosquitoes. And guess where Galatia was? It was up in the mountains. And uh, what, we, what we see him doing right here is that some actually think that the malaria led to an eye condition. Where would we get that from? Well, take a look at verse 15. It says that uh, you would have gouged out your eyes for me. That's pretty specific. Like, where do you, like, if somebody comes up to you and tries to express their love to you, like, I would gouge out my eyes for you. You'd be like, uh, please get away from me right now. I need some personal space. All right, you're affecting my mental wellness. Or uh, uh, not that, man, I can't believe I just said that. Mental wellness. Okay, yes. There we go. We take God's word seriously, ourselves not so much. And so <laughs> some think that Paul had malaria led to um, an eye condition. Uh, you see it verse 15. Verse 611, later on, he says, look at what large letters I'm writing with. That's interesting. Why would he write with large letters unless he had uh, some issues with his eyesight? But he, here's the, the big idea. When you're in control of your life, pain is viewed as a pointless problem. And you're going to spend your life trying to prevent it. Yes, we know this. But when you're surrendered to Christ, your outlook changes and no pain is ever in vain. And here's the question that I want to ask you. What are the pain points in your life right now? And you know, what, are those, what are those pains that you're experiencing? And what is your attitude and your outlook toward the pain that you're walking through? 
And here's just some helpful categories to think about this. Uh, Think about your pain through the lens of your struggles. So struggles, here's the thing about struggles and how it can become a platform, is because people are going to be impressed and wowed by your strengths, but they're going to feel close to you because of your struggles. Here's what happens when you, when you lead from vulnerability, when you lead with your struggles and you say, I'm in the same battle you are. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not above pain. I'm not above the pressures and, and I don't always nail it. But when you do that, you become approachable and you make other people feel comfortable. And it cultivates in your heart a compassion that is born of, of Christ, that we see in Christ. It, it creates in your heart a humility to where you don't, you don't look down your nose at other people because you know, hey man, we're in the same fight together and we wanna fight a good fight. So I don't know what your struggles are, but think about your sins. The areas where you just have actively in the past or maybe presently are disobeying God in some area. And, 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 it's, and it's one of those things where you look at this and you say, how, do you, how, does, how does that pain become a platform? It's because as you progress in godliness, as you give more of yourself to more of Christ, here's what you'll be able to say. It's called sanctification, by the way. What you'll be able to say is, it's not that I am sinless, but I am now sinning less. And I am saying no to sin more than ever before. And let me tell you, and you could go, maybe your testimony is like, man, I have said no to alcoholism. There was a day when, when, when salvation was, I thought it was found at the bottom of the bottle, but it left me empty every time. But I've seen, I've seen victory over this, or maybe it's some form of sexual uh, sin, or maybe it's just that comparison trap and keeping up with all of the appearances, and you're just like, man, I, I'm not immune to that. I've not totally beat that, but God's been gracious to me, and I'm seeing some progress, and I'm actively pursuing Christ right here, and it's a freedom that you say that you want. Then let me talk to you about how maybe God could be gracious to you in your sin as well, just like he's been to me. And so there's, uh, there is struggles, there's sin, but then there's also your sufferings. Let's get real. It's hard to raise kids. Amen? It is hard to walk through a, a job loss. It's hard for you to walk through a breakup. It's hard for you to deal with some sickness. It's hard to walk through a divorce. It's hard to walk through infertility. It's hard to walk through disability, but here's, here's what you can do is you can, if you can say, I'm going to look at my pain as a platform before I'm going to look at it as a problem. And I'm going to see how there are people out there who are dealing with the same sufferings that I am. And if I can trust God enough through this, I'm going to be able to give more hope and help to them as they're walking through their valley, as they're walking through their sufferings. You know, you know what suffering people want, what suffering people need? fellow sufferers who can say, look to the other side, Jesus is better than the best and he's worthy through the worst. And I just want to ask you this question, what pain, what pain, loved ones, could God be allowing in your life today that he could use as a platform for the gospel tomorrow? This is the beauty of surrender. Take a look at verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? Now that word, you know, we, we kind of have a cheesy approach to like blessed. It's like hashtag blessed or somebody sneezes, it's like bless you. Or in the South, if we're trying to 
kindly say you're an idiot. We'll say bless your heart. But this is so much bigger than some of you said that. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you laugh. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, who is they, the false teachers who teach Jesus plus law, make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you, or unless you make much of them. And let me, these are kind of some confusing verses. Let me tell you where my mind went. My mind went to that show Shark Tank. Anybody seen the show Shark Tank? It's like very entertaining. Like I love the show, watch it a lot with Victoria. But on Shark Tank, on Shark Tank, what they what they do to the, the people who are pitching the products is the same thing that these false teachers in Galatia were doing to the Galatians. He's like, if you can make me a prophet, then I will I will tell you that you're awesome. Then I will be on your team. And there's a reason they call them sharks, because it is for profit. And the only way that they're going to make much of any of those people who are selling the whole, I mean, there's like the squatty potty thing. Apparently all Americans were like going to the bathroom the wrong way for like all these years. And then there's like the scrub daddy. It's like, man, it's going to just make it like effortless whenever you clean like your countertops and whatever. It's like, I've been, I've been cleaning the wrong way my whole life. I need this product. And, and it's like, unless you can like pitch a product that's going to be profitable, I'm not going to be for you as a person. Here's something that you can mark down. Every false prophet is for profit. Every false prophet is for profit. What does that mean? They're not for you. They're for profit. But what does Paul say? Take a look. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. What's a good purpose? Well, greatness in the kingdom of God is defined as sacrificial service. That's good. That's true. That's beautiful. That's healing. So for a sacrificially selfless purpose, and not only when I am present with you, so basically he's saying, I wasn't for profit, I was for people. I was for you. I have your joy in mind. And here he says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. In other words, you, you ever like, you're texting with somebody and you're like, this needs to be a conversation. I need to get out from behind this text and we need to look eyeball to eyeball. That's what he's saying right here. He's saying, I would rather talk with you than text with you, but this is the only means of communication we have right now. I'm confused. So there's a lot of helpful truth in verses 15 through 20, but I wanna show you this. Surrender frees you to speak the truth in love. That's what it does. Uh, verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So what is Paul doing in these verses? Well, he's saying some very hard things and some, some very true things in some very loving ways. And that's the fruit of surrender. When your surrender to Christ means for conflict resolution, you don't have to peace fake. What is peace faking? It's social shaming. And it's ugly. It's what we call passive aggressive. I was talking to a church member last week and they talked about how there's this family member who if they don't like you, they just won't talk to you. And they'll, they'll act like you're not even in the room. It's, it's ugly, it's sinful, but it's, it's, it's actually a war-making means of saying, I, I have yet to learn how to resolve conflict in a spiritual, responsible, mature way. It's peace-faking, you won't have the conversation. And then there's peace-breaking. You get aggressive, you power up, you give them a piece of your mind. You, you get them back for the injury that they caused 
uh, to you. But here's what the gospel, what, what, or what Paul's doing right here is he's not peace faking. He's not peace breaking. He's peacemaking. So if peace faking is about avoidance, if when you're not okay, and peace breaking is about aggression, then peacemaking is about addressing. The way that we would say it around Coastway is assume the best and address the rest. And so Paul, that's what he's doing right here, but he says some hard things. He says in verse 17 through 18, you care more about pleasing man than God. Let's call it what it is. Verse 20, nothing you're doing makes sense to me. And then verse 15, probably the most piercing truth of all is verse 15, and it's posed as a question. He says, what has become of your blessedness? So that word blessedness basically means visible joy, happiness that you can see. Something that's going on in your life that's so big that we ought to be congratulating you for it. That's what it is. And I'm not sure how all it worked or how all this worked, but apparently it got back to Paul that the Galatians had lost their blessedness. That they were now kind of miserable and moping when at one point they were upbeat and joyful and excited as when they first believed. And did you know that's what happens when you try to follow God while maintaining control of your life? You lose your blessedness. You lose your joy. It's like me not letting go of that rope. Is you you end up running into the tree and miss it out on the joy. Paul spoke the truth in love. And here's the genius about his method, is he connects before he corrects. Do you see how personal he is? Do you see how he walked through the history of serving and sacrificing for the Galatians? And here, he doesn't even accuse. He just asks some questions. That's a, that's a, that's a very loving way to navigate conflict, by the way is to ask clarifying questions instead of making accusations. And so here's what I want to do. In love, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Number one, what happened to your joy in Christ? Some of you, you don't want God like you once did. Some of you, you've lost that desire to read your Bible, to spend time on your knees praying for your kids, praying for your lost neighbors. If you are being honest, the reason why you're here is because you feel like you have to be, not because you really want to be. And I just want to ask you, what happened to your joy in Christ? And I would say, based off the authority of the text, it's because on some level in your life, you're trying to hold on to control in a way that belongs to God. But the next question that I want to ask you is this, is what tough conversation are you putting off? What tough conversation are you putting off. Here's what I would encourage you, just to pray this prayer. It's very freeing. It's very honest. Lord, I know I need to bring up this issue with this person, but if I'm being honest, I'm afraid. I know I need to bring up this issue with this person, but I'm afraid. And then you go on and you pray, God, give me the courage to speak the truth in love and give me the faith to trust you with the outcome. That's surrender. That's releasing control. Take a look at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? I would not want to get in an argument with Paul. (laughs) This guy, I mean, he has got like this inner lawyer that is like, you're just indefensible when you find yourself trying to go to the mat with this guy. Intellectually, spiritually, like he's just like, checkmate. 
Because what he does in verse 21 is pure genius. The way that he reasons with the Galatians, the way he calls them back to surrender. And here's why. Notice how he uses the law two times in uh, in verse 21. He says, you want to control your salvation by keeping God's law. Okay, so that's the first use of the law in verse 21. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the 613 Jewish laws that good Jews would observe in order to be clean before God. He's like, okay, if that's how you want to live, then do you not listen to the law? Now he's talking about a broader sense, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the the Bible. What do we call it? We call it the law. And so here's what he's doing. He's like, okay, where did that law, the Ten Commandments, even come from? Well, it came from the law, the first five books of the Bible. And if that's your reference point, you need a timely reminder and you need to go back and read it. These Judaizers that are leading you astray, these false prophets for profit, what are they doing? They're cherry picking parts of the Bible that serve their selfish purposes. They're not telling you the whole truth. And so here's what he's about to do. He's about to return to Genesis, the law, and to the story of Abraham. And he's already done this in Galatians 3 and 4. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, like Galatians 3 and 4, these are two of the most difficult uh, chapters in the entire Bible to interpret. And uh, hopefully this is helpful. It's It's definitely hard though. But what Galatians 3 and 4 does is it tests how well you actually know the Old Testament. So in Galatians 3, Paul has already related salvation by faith to Abraham. He's he's rooted this whole argument that the only way you're going to be saved is by faith alone, through grace alone, and the promises of God being fulfilled by the power of God. And Abraham's the example of that. But, But here's what happened. In Genesis 12, God appeared to Abraham as a sterile, childless man in his 80s, who was married to a barren woman in her 70s. And so it's, it's Abraham and Sarah. And right about this time, God promises that Abraham and Sarah will give birth to a miracle child who will father a nation through whom another miracle child will be born, bringing salvation into the world. And so uh, let's just interact with this. Let's say that someone, anybody, including God, comes to you, you're in your 70s, you're in your 80s, and they're like, you're going to get pregnant. Uh, after, after you try to pick yourself up from the floor and you've pressed your life alert and said, please, somebody come and help me, I'm not okay, and you've laughed so hard that your dentures have fallen out of your mouth, then we can be like, uh, you said what? <laughs> that, that doesn't happen. I mean, people, you know, you, 50s, 60s, I mean, you start talking about this, it's just like you're joking, right? It's like, we're done, man. No, 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 we're done. But here's what, here's what we see. Abraham believed the promise, and when he did, a few things happened. His faith in the promised son was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared right before the law and before God. And then he and Sarah's old, sterile, lifeless bodies were infused with reproductive life. And Paul finds in this illustration uh, perfect for proving to the Galatians why we are saved by faith, not by works. By surrender, not by control. By promise, not by performance. You see, like Abraham, when we believe God's promise that Jesus, who is Abraham's offspring, brought salvation into the world just as God promised, then our faith is credited to us as righteousness and spiritual life is infused into our old, dead, sin-sick hearts. And this is a timely word for some of you. And the reason is, is because at certain points in your life, you laughed at the thought of God infusing new life into you. You didn't see your need for forgiveness. 
you didn't see your need for repentance. You didn't, you didn't see forgiveness as even something that was possible with all the bad things that you've done. But hey, as we've been walking through Galatians, your heart's been opened. Your eyes have been opened to the, the glorious message of justification before God by faith alone. And it's not just happened theologically, it's happened relationally. There have been people in our church who have been investing in you, who have been inviting you, who have been pursuing you, who have had you in, in their homes, who have, who have sat down to dinners with you. And through this combination of the beauty of Scripture being displayed in living color through the church, you have seen that you're not just a mistaker. You're a sinner. And apart from grace, you're separated from God. And through that, you've seen, man, the cross is personal. The resurrection is personal. The church is personal. And I'm ready to surrender my life fully and finally to Jesus and have him wash me clean and free me of all my, my sins and forgive me of all my sins. And I, I just want to tell you that if that's you, you're the reason why our church is here. And, and our church is here for you. And if I just described you, and if, if that like stirred something in you, you're like, that's me, that's me, that's me. I want to invite you to proudly and publicly be baptized next Sunday. Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. We're going to have everything ready. It's going to be a beautiful day. And we're going to celebrate the surrender of those among our church. And if that's you, it's really simple. You can go online. You can do it right now, coastwaychurch.com slash baptism. Or you can go outside and talk to one of us before you leave, and we would love to celebrate with you. So we're at toward the end of chapter 4. Here's what Paul does. He pulls out another detail from Abraham's life that illustrates the futility of trying to control our lives with human effort. And I'll go ahead and warn you, it doesn't make the children's Bibles. This is like you're getting a call from Jerry Springer and he wants you to come on his show type of stuff. Like this is some, if, if, you're, into, if you're a TikToker and you come up with a way to actually like turn this into a TikTok, you're guaranteed to go viral. This is some spicy stuff that we're about to deal with. And Paul's going to use uh, this analogy. Two sons born of two women with the same father, Abraham. Here's what you need to understand. The Bible is an honest book. It describes polygamy. It prescribes monogamy. Abraham was a blessed man, but he was still a broken man. And this is one of those areas of brokenness where we see it loud and clear. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Hagar, and one by a free woman, that's Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, that was Ishmael. He represents man's control. He represents what happens when we try to play God and take control. While the son of the free woman was, was born through promise, that's Isaac. He represents surrender. So simply put, when Abraham and Sarah believed the promise that they would have a miracle child, that uh, they didn't get pregnant immediately. It actually took 25 years before Isaac would come. And if you're in your early 20s and you're married and you're like, man, I want to have a baby, uh, 25 years feels like an eternity. But you're in, uh, you're, you're in your 90s, imagine how, how hard that would be year by year. And so around year 15, you know, Isaac comes at 25, year 15, Sarah decides, we're going to play God. We're going to take control. God needs some help. So she brings her younger, beautiful, fertile, household servant named Hagar to Abraham and says, sleep with her and give me, give me the baby. And uh, interestingly, Abe doesn't argue at this point. It's like he had bigger issues than just a lack of faith, I would say. He passively 
complies, and here's what I want to say right here, this is strikingly similar to what happened in the garden between Adam and Eve. Eve comes to Adam and says, eat of this forbidden fruit, and Adam passively complies instead of leading his home. Sarah comes to Abraham and says, eat of this fruit, and he passively complies instead of leading his home. And men, I want to talk to you for just a minute. Husbands, I want to talk to you for just a minute. You are called to love your wife. You are called to listen to your wife, but you're also called to lead your wives. And how did we get ourselves into this mess? How did Abraham and Sarah get themselves into this mess? It was because there was a man who bucked responsibility and said, I'm going to be selfish and I'm not going to lead. And it led to a big blowout. And here's what we see. The point after all of this goes down is Hagar gets pregnant by Abraham and they name him Ishmael. In verse 23, we see that he was born by the flesh, which means that was under man's control. And what's Paul's point in all this? Well, his whole, his whole point is that Abraham and Sarah, what Abraham and Sarah did is exactly what the Galatians are doing by, when they're trying to earn their salvation by works of the law instead of by faith alone in Christ. They're attempting to fulfill promises by their own control. And like Sarah, they, have, they haven't totally stopped believing the promise. They just think, well, well, let's help God out a little bit. And you're like, well, what's the significance of all that? Take a look at verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. That was where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. It represents the law. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Those are the Jews who look, those are people still today who look to the law to bring them life. I'm going to be saved by keeping the law. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, that's God's kingdom, is free. And she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud. You, are not in la- you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This is the last truth that I want to show you today, and it's this. Surrender frees you to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. So, it didn't make any sense for Abraham and Sarah to trust God after all those years. Well, he's left us. He's forgot us. It didn't make sense for the Galatians to place the full weight of their hope for eternity on one man's finished work. Surely he needs help. Let me, let me help him out a little bit. And here's a question I want to ask you. Where in your life are you struggling to trust God? Where in your life would it just not make sense to those on the outside that you would walk with God, that you would walk in faith, that you would believe his promises. And I could think of a few areas just that are common. Maybe, maybe it's one of God's laws. Maybe there's some part of God's laws that you look at and you say, that's restrictive. That's regressive. And here's, here's what's going on with God's laws. And, and we saw this in Galatians 3, 24, that God's law is a guardian intended to guide us to Jesus to guide us home to God's heart, to, to guide us safely home to him. The law is not bad. Like there's nothing bad about the law. It just has limits. But a lot of the times we look at the laws of God, whether it be something related to our sexuality, something re- related to our possessions, something related to our time or our finances, and we say, God, I'm not about that. I know better than you do. And here's what the law does. I was thinking about it this way, and we were actually we were talking about this a little bit in our community group on Thursday night, is 
You know that dad who tells his daughter who he loves with all his heart, please be home by 10 p.m.? Well, that's what God is doing with the law because that dad knows that daughter better than anybody at that party. That dad knows that daughter better than any boy that's going to take her out on a date. That dad loves and cares for and thinks about that daughter's future more than anybody else who she would spend time with that night. And so what is he concerned with when he says, be home by 10 p.m.? He's concerned with her future. He's concerned with her flourishing. And what he's saying is, I love you so much, I can't stand the thought of you leaving me and not coming back. That's what the law is. It's God saying, won't you come home to me? And even when you break it, even when you're busted, would you still come back? I'm no less going to welcome you. So the laws, maybe you need to trust God with some area of disobedience that just doesn't make sense to you. Or maybe you feel lonely and you feel, God, you've abandoned me. You've walked out on me. And maybe it's, you see it with your kids. Maybe you see it with your spouse. Maybe you see it with your friends. Maybe you see it with your peers. And you feel so lonely. But here's the, the precious promise from God. Isaiah 43, 2. Will you believe this? It's when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame will not consume you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The question is, will you believe it? Did you know that God's presence is no less, less available, no less present than when a storm cloud covers the sun and makes the sun disappear? It's there. You just got to wait and you got to be patient and you got to trust that he's not gone anywhere. Others of you, you feel like uh, God's... Uh, God's taken something from you, and there's a loss in your life. Maybe you've lost your health. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost some joy, and it's hard. Maybe you've given up something for God, and you feel like he's just kind of hung you out to drive. Here's the promise. It's Matthew 19, 29, and I want to ask you, will you believe this? Do you believe this? And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and Fathers and mothers and children and houses and, and lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold back and will inherit eternal life. Do you believe it? Do you believe that even when you don't see it, God is working? Lastly, some of you, you feel uh, like it doesn't make sense your location. You're here in Myrtle Beach, and this happens all the time. We hear this all the time. Is you're here in Myrtle Beach, and you're like, God, why am I here? This doesn't make any sense for me to be here. And, I, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to fast track the season. You're trying to get out as soon as you can. You're trying to put a timeline on God and saying, God, this is uncomfortable. But what God's trying to do is he's trying to deposit perseverance and character in your heart in this season that you're gonna need in the next if you're gonna survive and walk with him. And the question that I wanna ask is, do you believe Romans 8, 28? That for those who love God, all things work together according to good for those uh, who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And this is what it looks like whenever we surrender, even when it doesn't make sense. Take a look at verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, not of performance. But just as at, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh 
persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Take a look at verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? And I want to challenge you this week, ask that question before you take control. What does the Scripture say? What does God have to say about this? If I try to play God right here, if so, you'll live a fuller, you'll live a freer life. Cast out the slave woman and her son. In other words, reject your need to take control. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And uh, I want to go ahead and I want us to dip into chapter 5, verse 1. Understand the chapter divisions, those were added later on. Nobody asked me, that's fine. But if it were up to me, this would be Galatians 4, verse 32. (laughs) For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom. Christ set you free. He paid the price to buy you back and bring you back so that you would no longer live like a slave, but you would live like a freed person. And what's the only thing that's better better than being in control? Well, it's the very thing that Jesus offers to you right now. It's that you would be found, that you would be freed, and that you would be forgiven by the one who has complete control. When you look at the life of Jesus, what was it that he did? He was the only one who ever had the resource and the reserve to actually pay God back. And we see in Colossians 2.14 that he canceled the record of death that stood against us according to its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross on your behalf. But then you see, what does he do? He views his pain as a platform. And he says it was for the joy, it was for you that was set before him, that he endured the cross and he saw the purpose behind the pain. He turned it in the greatest platform in human history to bring you back to himself forever, to be family. And then he, he didn't just speak the truth in love. He was the truth and he was love. And he didn't just have opportunities to, to resist God in times when it didn't make sense. He actually trusted God when it didn't make sense. In the garden, he cries to his father as he's about to face the cross. He said, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, would you make it available? Would you make it known to me now? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the assurance that we have today. If you will release control to Jesus, he will surely set you free. Let me pray for us.